Do not unmask a covert narcissist. Just quietly run away. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, dear shit shows. What's happening? For any new listeners, I'm Andrea. I'm a shit show. And this is where we talk about how there's nothing shameful or embarrassing about growing up in a dysfunctional family, that there's nothing shameful or embarrassing if your childhood has impacted you in negative ways, and that healing and recovery is absolutely possible. So happy Valentine's Day. Um, I guess actually by the time you're listening to this, it's going to be the day after Valentine's Day, but happy belated Valentine's Day. I didn't even realize that today was Valentine's Day. How many times can I say Valentine's Day in a a period of 15 seconds? I didn't even realize that today was Valentine's Day uh, until I was drinking my coffee this morning. And that's a damn miracle, folks. Okay, that is a miracle because Valentine's Day for me for years and years and years and years really fucking sucked. It was just this reminder or it would just really bring to the surface those core faulty beliefs of I'm unlovable. When I was single on Valentine's Day, this was just this, uh, it would just reaffirm this belief that I had within me that there was something inherently wrong with me. And to not even realize that it's Valentine's Day until it was like, you know, an hour into my day or so, that's a miracle. And then also, too, that when I realized it was Valentine's Day, the thoughts didn't start to come in like you're a loser, you're unlovable, you're going to be single for the rest of your life. None of that. That is a huge miracle. We had on Amy on Shit Show Saturday about a month or so ago, and she had the most amazing line. She said, And because we don't know what the whole loaf is, we think crumbs are a seven-course meal. And boy, does this story really sum that up. So I was dating, I think I called him Mr. Looks Good on Paper. So if you haven't listened to episode five, go back and listen to it. That's where I tell you all about my broken ass picker and all of the gems that I dated, all of the eligible bachelors that um, shame on me for letting them get away, right? Um, But so we, so this was a guy that was, he lived in New York, but he was doing um, work down in Florida And he, I mean, given his name, Mr. Looks Good on Paper, he really checked all the damn boxes, including that he was super, super avoidant, which was clearly on my, on my list back then, unbeknownst to me. Um, and so we, it's Valentine's Day. We've been dating mm, at four or five months. He was not in town on Valentine's Day. And probably around 10 o'clock that morning, I get a happy Valentine's Day text. Just those three words. And my reaction to that was like, like he had proposed to me. Like, it's so ridiculous. It's somebody that I'm dating for like four or five months who like doesn't even call or doesn't even like send a card or flowers 
or or anything. Just three words. Happy Valentine's Day. And I just remember like being like, because you know how it is when you're in these relationships, like you're just like trying to find anything to hold on to, to be like, see, they really do like me. And that was my response. Like, oh, he, he really does like me. He texted me three words on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Jeez Louise. Uh, okay, so today we are joined by Ross Rosenberg. He is a psychotherapist. He is the author of the book, The Human Magnet Syndrome, The Codependent Narcissist Trap. So we're talking about a bunch of things, one of which being codependency. So he has renamed codependency as self-love deficit disorder. So we're talking about that some, and we're talking about his theories on what causes codependency. So it is a an interesting conversation. But first, let's get some business out of the way, y'all, okay? First, I want to give a shout out to all my new shit shows, all my new members of the Shit Show Nation. You thought, you thought you were going to get through a whole episode without me saying that, right, Chris? Situation! <laughs> so this is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups with some amazing people. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you to Natalie, Ellie, Aaliyah, Zach, Holland, Charlene, Blair, Alex, Stephen, Sharice, Basak, sorry, I'm, I know I'm butchering that, Nancy, and Jill. Thank you, thank you, thank you, shit shows. Again, I'm talking to you. Uh, yep, you, you, the one that's been wanting to sign up for, for quite some time. Uh, how about you do something about that and damn the join Patreon, patreon.com slash adult child. Next, give me a follow on the Insta, on the TikTok. And last but not least, Give me a damn five-star rating on Apple, on Spotify. If you don't do this, I just want you to know because uh, ratings really do help, you know, spread the podcast out. So just think if you're not giving me that five-star review, you are, you know, partially to blame for a suffering adult child out there who who doesn't know about the podcast, okay? So you don't, you don't want that on your conscience. Thank you very, very much. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. All right, y'all buckle up. We got a good one coming your way. Let me just first start off with just saying, well, we have Ross Rosenberg. And I think the claim to fame that I want to give you is that you are superb on naming things. <laughs> you got a good catch for that, you know? Yeah, it's funny. I can't remember people's names, um, but I can like create names in my head. And I think it goes down to just my intuition for wanting it's like i can like feel and like understand something so well that it's i used to write poetry back in my younger days it's my need to come up with a name that communicates the problem 
And 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 it just like it's like a word pops up, like the human magnet syndrome. Yeah. Opposite the narcissist is the, the taker. He needs everything. That 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 the codependent needs everything and get and the codependent gives everything and sacrifices. So they are opposites that come together. And one day I thought, oh wow, it's like magnets. Then I thought when I had an argument with my publisher who wanted to put some crappy title to my book that I didn't want to agree to. What was it? Do you remember? <laughs> it was he wanted they wanted to use emotional manipulator. Because their research said the term emotional manipulator interested people. And if you interested people, they'll buy your book. And I kept saying, you don't have to do a, a marketing trick on my stuff because it will interest people. And, the, and I tried to say, codependents can be emotional manipulators. Mm -hmm. Narcissists can be emotional manipulators. It's independent. So why call someone something that they're not? But I agreed to refer to that in my book, which I did. So if you, and please don't, but if you ever read the very first edition, um, instead of saying pathological narcissist, I refer to them as emotional manipulators. manipulators. I had to, but I wouldn't agree to the title, even though I signed away my rights. And I, and I basically said, fine, I won't write it because I, I hadn't written it yet. And then one day I woke up because I'm thinking, can I swear on this podcast? Fuck yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, I'm so used to being on YouTube and YouTube, you, you say like, gosh, dang it. And like now they, but is they, it true that, so if you're doing a live, if you're like a, I, what I've heard that as long as you get like within like, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes of the live, then you can start cursing. Yeah. See, the thing is I don't do live work on YouTube, you know? So typically what'll happen like is I'll come I'll be in a, a psychotherapy session or mm -hmm. If I'm in therapy myself, I'll have some idea or some realization. And I'll have and and like the other day, what well, three weeks ago, this woman could not um, she was so codependent or what I call self-love deficient. She married this pathological narcissist who gaslit her for 27 years. And it is a fact. You cannot be a codependent and not have lived a childhood with some form of attachment trauma with a narcissistic parent. And so she talked about her family as no problems. Mom's good. Dad's good. We got along. And it was bizarre because it didn't fit. So I, I figured it out. And just like anyone who's gaslit or brainwashed, I was able to find clues and then start um, talking to her what I was discovering and, and getting her to remember little by little. And then after a period of three months, I was able to show her through my discoveries that she lived in a really terrible and uh, dysfunctional, harmful family that everyone kept saying were good. And in that moment, I came up with the term reverse gaslighting, that everyone was gaslit. Instead of being gaslit, like normal gaslighting is you gaslight someone to think that there's something wrong with them, that they that either is not true, or maybe it's a minor or moderate problem. And then you, you manipulate the environment, you trick them to believe that it's a horrible problem for which they, they, you know, they isolate and they feel they don't have control. So now they are dependent on the narcissist and the narcissist control them. So we'll call that your, your garden variety gaslighting. Well, reverse gaslighting is when you manipulate them. Into thinking everything was good. Everything was good. Yeah. It's like she, she like and 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 once she figured that out, everything now had an explanation. Mm -hmm. Or just two days ago, I was um, I like continuums, 
And, and in my book, I have a, um, a whole chapter on my relationship compatibility continuum. And I was talking about the anger continuum, that anger is not, it cannot be just understood. It's just an emotion that's static. It's on a continuum. And then mm -hmm. I said, the continuum starts with a zero neutral, no angry, not happy, if you can, and moves to annoyance, to frustration, to anger, different gradations of anger, to rage, and that ends at homicidal or suicidal rage. I figured that, that I was trying to figure the worst. And to me, that seemed like the worst. So I love- What did you say? Was that, the, what was that the far end, the, the weakest end of anger? Where does it start? Okay, so so all continuums have to start at a place of non-existence of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, for example, like the alcohol, alcoholic con continuum, it starts at no drinking and then um, experimentation. So the anger continuum starts at a neutral place that you're neither, since happy and angry are opposite. So if there is a continuum, you, you'd have angry and happy. But since we're talking about anger, mm -hmm. it starts off with no anger, mm -hmm. no frustration, no annoyance, just nothing is bothering you. It doesn't mean you're happy. So it's it's it basically it starts with the absence of anger. That's all it does. It doesn't it doesn't say anything else about your personality. So just think of any time in your day where you're just going about your day and and you're just your regular self, and then something annoys you. Well, before you got annoyed, that was your unless you're unless you are or any person I ask is angry. So the absence of anger is the beginning point. People who are codependents, now I'm going to use the term self-love deficient because I changed the name mm -hmm. from codependency to self-love deficit disorder and the person from a codependent to self-love deficient. So I will be referring to codependency as SLDD, self-love deficit disorder, and codependence as self-love deficient SLDs. But SLDs, like ACOAs, although there's a major difference, they... Um, don't know what to do with anger. They either um, uh, they either overreact to it or underreact to it. They either feel comfortable in it or they feel scared in it. So anger is a is a an emotion, an experience. Excuse me, that activates most SLDs because it connects them back to their childhood when they lived in this terribly dysfunctional home where the parent that was supposed to love them was too narcissistic to care. So, so if I'm working with a client who doesn't recognize her emotions and who never learned exactly what they were, and so she lived most of her life detached or dissociated, and, and you see a lot of ACOAs, adult child, and SLDs, um, where that's how they just coped. Well, during their formative years, they didn't have the normal experiences that what I would call normal. By the way, my, my definition of normal people have tons of problems. They're just like anyone else, but they, they, they can solve them. Well, they didn't have those normal developmental experiences as a child and a teenager where you got to have all those emotions and you had to work through them. So with my client, I would like to say, you seem frustrated. No, no, I'm not. And But I could see and feel it. And I go, do you ever get angry? I don't. And she just, for her to understand, for her to expand her experience, in other words, for her, for me to help her reassociate or be more emotionally uh, congruent in her life, she had to not only understand the feeling, 
she had to uh, then recognize it in herself. And then the hardest part was to recognize anger is a healthy emotion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's how much of the anger, how it's used and what you do with it. It's just part of being human and you shouldn't be afraid of it. So I don't know why I got off on that. I think it started with you saying, I'm really good at coming up yeah, with terms and, and stuff like that. <laughs> Sorry, my cat is like. Um, yeah, I have my, I have a dog that is a, still thinks he's That's a puppy. So, oh, what a cutie. Hey, what's your, what's your uh, cat's name? Kiki. Kiki. Oh, that's, that's such a cat name. Mm-hmm. We have Lucas. Um, okay. So a bunch of things that I'm thinking about. Um, so <clears throat> self-love deficit disorder. I, I want to go back to what you just said about the, um, with codependency, I a hundred percent agree that it is, um, trauma-based and attachment-based. I'm not sure if I can get on board with it, that there's always a narcissist involved. I will prove it to you. Okay. I? And I guess I'd want to hear what your definition is. Cause I do feel like in today's day and age, it's overused. Do you feel okay. that way? Oh my God. Yes. That okay. is why I wrote my book. I, whenever I get a chance, um, when it's appropriate, I have a lot of opinions about the crap that's on YouTube and podcasts yeah, and everyone exploiting Everyone's in narcissism. I am a psychotherapist. I'm a clinician. And when I use the term narcissist, I use the term, and I, I set this up early in my book, pathological narcissist is one of three personality disorders, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, or antisocial personality disorder, or sociopath. Wait, you said a, a pathological narcissist is one of those three, three things? Yeah, there's, um, yeah, I consider when I use the term pathological narcissist, they have a borderline nor, nor, narcissistic okay. and, and antisocial or sociopath. And, um, and some people call that the cluster B but it's close, but not exactly. So your but, theory is that anybody that suffers from codependency was raised by somebody that has a personality disorder. No, actually, let, let me let me okay. uh, continue Sorry. with what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so um, as, a, as a mental health practitioner who was trained in diagnosis, I do not give someone a diagnosis unless they fit exactly what, the 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 science and the and the, and the mental health fields have determined is a problem. So when I call someone a pathological narcissist, they can, in my opinion, they probably could be diagnosed by any mental health practitioner. Versus when someone calls a person a narcissist, they're probably just they're selfish or self centered. Mm-hmm. And and for for all that I know, some pe- narcissists call everyone narcissist. So not only am I specific in my use of terminology. I had to recreate a definition for codependency because codependent or codependency to understand what that is. You literally can um, write three chapters, a brief chapters on what is codependency. Codependency anonymous has it wrong. Um, Everyone seemed to have it wrong. They had it so that people who have these personality disorders, problems, these tendencies, these bad habits who try to control people, and they made it all about what they do. But people who are codependent, and I created a very brief definition, because I because if it's brief, 
then you don't have to, you can't put everyone in it. A person who is codependent or not a self-love deficient is someone who has a pattern, a relationship pattern, where they give most, if not all, the love, care, respect, and trust to people, especially their intimate partners or family. They want it or hope that it will be reciprocated. It doesn't because the human, and it's based upon the human magnet syndrome. Uh, codependents fall in love with narcissists, narcissists fall in love with codependents. So it's based upon that. So it, you give all the love, care, respect, and trust away with hopes that it'll be reciprocated. It's not. And you stay in a relationship. That's it. Then I say personality is independent. You can have controlling codependents, like you can have passive codependents who just give up. You can have anorexic codependents. And so then I created this idea that codependency is always the same thing and the type of person mm -hmm. changes versus trying to have a catch-all. So my understanding and use of terminology on purpose is specific and consistent because of the same opinion you have. So, so do you think that somebody who is an avoidant attacher can be on the, would they be like a I can't remember, like an ant, like a, an anorexic codependent. Like, would that be what you? Would I think? don't use I don't use other theoretical work. Um, um, okay, theory. that's not that's actually not true. Everything I do is based upon other theories. Um, the um, the attachment theory is a really good theory, and it's solid, and it needs no one to say it's good. It's just it's there. But um, my work purposely does not try to match up with that because. If I try to match up with someone else, I lose what my originality. So because there's not a correlation um, between the way that I categorize things and the attachment matrix. So what I can say is all people with self-love deficit disorder, codependency, have attachment issues. All narcissists have attachment issues. They all were raised in families that... And let's just talk about codependence because it goes back to a question you said or a comment you said earlier. Um, a person who grows up who reflexively feels comfortable and safe with a selfish, self-centered, um, uh, entitled person, not recognizing it, but just thinks they're beautiful, wonderful, who just um, chemistry happens with that type of person, it can be explained that in their childhood when during their attachment phase, they didn't get they didn't get unconditional loving and safety and all the stuff that average the good parents get. And in order to survive the fury, the wrath, or the potential harm of, of having a narcissistic parent, the child who was able to mold themselves to what that parent needed, be the good girl, be the smart boy, be the quiet one, raise the children, be the parent's friend, but who can find a way to, to make their narcissistic parent happy, they were saved from the brunt of the abuse or harm that everyone else got. Because narcissists need someone to make them happy. And if you can't, then you're on the other side of that. You now, So if you are born in a family with a, a pathologically narcissistic parent, you have two directions to go. One is being able to figure out how to how to be the good kid or maintain that 
or being the one that is constantly triggering or activated or disappointing. And so for the person who cannot figure it out, that attachment experience is lonely. It's bitter. They are. So if you think of a family with a narcissistic parent, and of course, because of the human magnet syndrome, there's usually a codependent parent, the, the bad seed, the child that just can't figure out a way to be the, you know, get love. That child grows up in a, in a desert and a nightmare. That's why, that's why they become their developmental, um, experience is so traumatic. It, it explains the development of a personality disorder, but the child who can get love, who can learn that if they can be the right type of person, they will get the only type of love. So they learn early on that to feel safe and to experience love is to make someone else happy. And that happens before you can even speak. And of course, as the child grows older and older, she or he learns that, okay, well, if, you know, if I just somehow keep my feelings in, don't start any trouble, get good grades. So that child grows up. And, and what happens is I call it a relationship template. Everyone, because of their attachment experience, grows up. If you have good attachment, your relationship template is you feel comfortable around healthy people. You don't even know it. That's the whole, but if you only know what to do with someone who needs you and you can be invisible and that caused trauma in your childhood that you don't remember when you grow up and you're dating and you're with a narcissist, other than that person seeming sexy, beautiful, uh, charming, brilliant, or whatever is the thing, there's this feeling of connection. And the narcissist has the same, that's the chemistry part. And that can trace, be traced back. That chemistry reaction is traced back to the attachment experiences. It paradoxically feels safe because it's familiar. And I can prove that. If you come from that type of family and all you know is that type of love and you have really bad self-esteem, which any uh, child who's brought up in that environment has, if you meet someone say you're on a date and they're healthy, they will get you nervous and you won't know why. And all you'll know is you don't have chemistry or you, you'll, I mean, you won't say the words right. You, you're going to feel like you're messing things up. It's the unconscious feeling that you don't know what to do with a healthy person because you don't have experience. I don't know if it's nervous. I mean, I, I get bored. I think bored, that or bored, yeah, bored another I, I would say that right. the problem is, is that they're not getting me nervous. They're not riling up my, my attachment system. It's, it's, it's okay. So to use it, to bring together what you're saying and I'm saying is there's no chemistry. Yes. That's it. There's, and the cat, that's the conscious part. And so that explains why I fell in love over and over again with so many narcissists be, um, because I didn't fall in love with narcissists. Codependents don't fall in narcissists because they're narcissists. Codependents aren't sadists. They fall in people, fall in love with people that are beautiful, wonderful. They're soulmates, true love. It is this attachment experience that feels wonderful because they know what to do. They feel connected. And if it's not, there's no chemistry. And the, you know, and like, you know, they can end like you're more of a feeling like siblings or, or platonic friends, and they, they can be a lovely person. So circling back, and then I'm going to stop because I don't want to uh, talk too much here is to understand my, my hypothesis. Uh, 
that if you're codependent, you had attachment trauma. At the earliest parts of your life, your fundamental basic emotional needs were not met, which is what does a kid need? Just love, protection, nurturing, all that stuff that, and the type of parent that can't give that, there are exceptions. You can have disabled, poverty, war, is someone that is unable to do that. And a pathological narcissist is unable to do that and will punish a child without even knowing by taking away their attention or actually punishing them if that child doesn't make them feel good. And so if you put it all together and you trace back the codependence childhood history, there's no way they could have developed into that type of personality type without it being made. It's a product of no, I I 100% agree, but I'm not I'm still just not fully on board with the That's cool. I mean, part. I, but I'm just curious when you think of it from the perspective of like alcoholism, right? So which is which saying, is like a different subject and it's related. Yes. Um I think that I think that alcoholism and I so I I totally I agree with the fact that I think that there's this misconception that only like mm-hmm substance abuse can result in codependency. And I don't agree with that. Just like not only alcoholism can create an adult child. I think that there's tons of trauma and different types of dysfunctional families that can produce an adult child and that can produce a codependent. I don't know though, if always narcissism is like, is your opinion that alcoholism is a, there's always narcissism involved? So I'm going to tell you my opinion, but I, I want to remind you that my opinion is not. So you can watch YouTube podcasts. Everyone has an opinion. No, I know, but, but I'm just trying but, to. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, alcoholism is an addiction that was caused by both psychological and environmental reasons, Trauma. and personality reasons, and family reasons, and environmental environmental reasons. So alcoholism, I know, is a chemical dependency, um, and what usually drives a person to become chemically dependent um, because an alcoholic doesn't start off as an alcoholic. He starts off as someone who usually is self-medicating for whatever reason um, is what I call the original condition. So most addicts, alcoholics, especially um, turn to the drug, the uh, alcohol in order to make up for something, escape something, um, mm-hmm numb something. Mm -hmm. And that problem is as important as the addiction. The problem is you can't get to that Mm -hmm. problem until you get them into recovery. So I say in my book, there there's, there's three, uh, there's four groups that fall into pathological narcissists. Of course, I told you those three disorders. And then there is the out of control, selfish uh, addict. So uh, most addicts, alcoholics are, are, behave narcissistically. Yes. Not, Agreed. That is not the same as a, nar- yes. as a narcissist. Uh-huh. Yeah. Selfish. No. Uh-huh. And, and in the pursuit of this drug, they will do anything and everything um, for themselves and ignore everyone else. Yeah. But you cannot diagnose pathological narcissism, the, the, the personality disorder until they are sober. Yeah. So if you, if you have a person that has been a drunk an alcoholic and they are sober and they're 
they are in recovery, you're going to find out where they lie on my continuum. And my continuum, not every, and my continuum is not narcissist codependent. It's every possibility. And so there are so many times in my career I have worked with a nasty, narcissistically behaving addict, especially sex addicts, because that was a big part of my career. And then once they became sober, I found out what drove them to the drug um, for which they're responsible, you can't blame anyone else, um, was being a codependent with a narcissist. And they they just couldn't deal with they just couldn't deal with the pain. So they started drinking or they started gambling or, you know, whatever. And so, and then sometimes when they're sober, they're more on the narcissistic side. And a lot of times they're somewhere in the middle and they don't deserve a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So that disease or, or the chemicals dependency in itself creates narcissism, narcissism. but you can't call them narcissists because you have I mean, their diagnosis is uh, chemically dependent. Mm-hmm. You, if someone has, um, um, my mom had an anxiety and ADHD and codependency, go figure. But because of her anxiety and ADHD, she was a terrible listener. Oh my God, it used to drive me crazy. <laughs> but she really cared. And she thought, unlike my dad who was a narcissist, he didn't give a shit and he was a terrible listener. But my mom would feel bad and try. <laughs> I used to say, mom, just stop. And, and, but she, so some people would think that she was a narcissist, but she wasn't. She mm-hmm. just sucked at listening. Mm-hmm. So, so, and I say that is it's easy for people to jump on the bandwagon for using a, a, a diagnosis or a name. Yeah. Um, and that is why it's really important. And I appreciate it that you bring a person like me onto your podcast that can try to clarify things, not because of my opinion and life experience, which I have a lot of opinions and life experiences, but because a, you know, a clear black and white definition that everyone else has if, if they have the same education. It's not just like politics or religion. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you brought up that for, fourth category because. Remind me, what was it? <laughs> what, did, what, what did I say? Adi- people that ha- suffer from addiction that have narcissistic qualities. Absolutely. Because initially you know when you brought up the three, I'm like, I don't think my parents were, you know, I just think that there's absolutely, I think that people that are suffering from, um, they definitely, my parents definitely acted narcissistically, but I wouldn't qualify them pathological narcissists. So I'm glad that you called them clarified that. And, and that is why these diagnoses are important and why someone can determine it. So, you know, if you have a parent who is an alcoholic and, and he or she is just out drinking all the time, yeah. um, well, I mean, you have attachment trauma and you bear the scar. I'm not you. I'm talking about general. Oh, I do. <laughs> and, you bear, and, and you or, okay. I'm, okay. I say you rhetorically, um, but well, I do. <laughs> these people bear the scars and, um, and, and they're often similar to the scars that a child who has a narcissistic parent. So it's not the diagnosis that determines attachment trauma. It's the experience. So you could have, um, an alcoholic dad and say mom, just to make it uh, more consistent, who really have empathy and love you when they're sober, but they're disease. And so you're growing up with, you know, violence, unpredictability, um, not stability, not love. And that's the attachment trauma. And 
it would be incorrect to say it's because of a personality disorder. It was because you, the child, did not get their basic needs met. So I leave room, everything I talk about in my book, actually, you're a podcast. I'm showing it to people. I'm so used to, I'm so used to YouTube videos. I <laughs> yeah. might share some of this on. I Product placement. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm so used to people like asking me, but what about this? And what about that? And I say there are always exceptions, but the exceptions to me always make sense. Like how come in an arrangement, I had this one, she was actually an employee and she was from, um, had Indian descent. And she said, you know, this human magnet syndrome doesn't apply to my family. Cause I think my mom and dad are both narcissists. And I'm, and of course that was back when I was a little bit more militant in my ideas. Like it's always this way. I'm a little bit more relaxed now. And I kept looking and then I realized. Your parents' marriage did, was arranged. It's arranged. There was no <laughs> chemistry. There yeah. was no matching. Yeah. And there's. Then there are so many exceptions and all the exceptions make sense. And, and they, they, they help me because my, my theory is not a rule. It's a way of thinking. Mm -hmm. At least I think that way. One thing that's kind of interesting, and I was thinking about this when you brought up the um, kind of the anger continuum earlier. And I was thinking about it from the perspective of this compassion and anger continuum that yeah. I feel like many of us adult children are on where we vacillate between understanding that, you know, our parents are sick people, just like we are. This is a generational disease. You know, they're just a product of their own upbringing, like, and then, then being so fucking pissed off for everything that they've done and kind of vacillating between Seems the two. And I think that that's normal, but I think one thing that's interesting is like, when you think about it from these four different categories that you have, can I say something about what you just said before yeah. that? Because okay, because um, I don't want to lose it. Um, if you are in a treatment program for the purpose of healing, what I call self love deficit disorder, and another maybe another interview, I'll tell you all about that. But we, if, if you have attachment trauma and that caused codependency, mm -hmm. then we have to figure out a way to get to that trauma you experienced as a child. Okay. And so, um, and you have to actually identify what you put away. You forgot because just like PTSD, you forget because you don't want to remember. And once you start remembering it, you start realizing how much you were hurt. The worst thing you can do for a client in this type of therapeutic environment is to say, well, you know, you shouldn't get mad and you should be mad. Mm -hmm. Um, what I say is you need to experience the feeling that would have been normal if you weren't Absolutely. afraid to feel it because they never experienced anger as a child. And so what I do is I facilitate anger. Okay. Actually, that's not, that's horrible. I didn't mean so I No, no, that sounds horrible. I facilitate the feelings that come up, which are almost anger, hurt. And by getting them to openly consider it and experience it, I am giving them the opportunity, what they should have felt as a child. Cause mm -hmm. you know, that's how you learn about feelings is you have them and you work them out. And then, as I always say to people, when I have this discussion is my goal is to get, once they embrace the true feelings they had that they never were able to experience, didn't know how to, or weren't allowed, mm -hmm. then they are no longer a prisoner of those. And mm -hmm. then they can decide whether they want to be empathetic or not. Mm -hmm. And, Many, including myself, make a decision to be empath empathetic with our parents, not so much for me with my dad, but 
It 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 wasn't a rule. It's, there's no rule that you have to be empathetic because everyone this codependency narcissism thing it is a multi generational. It goes from generation to generation. So every codependent, every narcissist has their own sad story. And if you forgive someone before you allowed yourself to be angry, then you're being codependent and it's hurting. So be mad at your parents. And so then if you want to forgive them, I embrace that. No, I think, and I talk about that and it talks about that in one of the, um, one of the ACA books about how, you know, the process of forgiveness, it can't be awareness to forgiveness. So awareness, oh, this is a generational thing. So I forgive them that it's so crucial that all of those feelings um, come up in order for us to heal. But what I was just going to say about that is that there's almost like a part of me that feels like growing up in an alcoholic home and then becoming an alcoholic myself. Yeah. It's almost, I feel like it's easier for me perhaps to get to a place of compassion. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. I still get pissed off too for what I went through, but compared to somebody who like, I'm thinking about my friend, Tiffany, whose mother was a, you know, a a covert narcissist and was horrible to her. Like, I feel like it's, it's a lot. That's that's worse than having alcoholic parents or parents who were harmful. But if you took away the disease would have been not that's how I think of it. But then, but it, but is it not kind of the same thing? Like if we were to like, are, isn't a covert narcissist, like, is it really like their choice or are they just suffering from a disease? Just like somebody suffering from alcoholism. So what I'm going to tell you is what I tell my clients is for the purpose. Okay. And I'm talking about my clients now, not you for the purpose of this discussion, it's counter therapeutic to figure out your parents because it takes us off track. Yeah, I, I but, understand. But, but I'm going to, but it takes us off track with it, um, understanding what happened to you. Cause if you don't understand what happened to you, you can't find the hurt. So, so yes, yes. It's they, everyone has a story. Everyone deserves empathy, but in the world we live in now, not, I'm going to sound like a sociologist or whatever. Adults are responsible to take care of kids, black and white, just for this, it's black, nothing's black and white, but in this, and therefore, if it, um, if someone doesn't do it, they deserve to take responsibility or some would say blame. Mm-hmm. So if you have a child and you don't take care of them, even if you weren't taking care of a child, you are to blame. If you broke into a house or bur- burglarized a house, no one cares about your, your childhood. Yeah. You go to prison. <laughs> okay. Well, that's obvious. Well, I mean, that's how our society is. Otherwise, it'd be anarchy. So I explained it to my clients not to be black and white or vindictive, but to understand that you can everyone has a choice. You are choosing to heal and your children, whether they're five or 45, they can benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Um and I am very different from most codependent codependency counselors, because I hold my SLDs responsible in as much as what is fair, not to shame them, Mm -hmm. but to understand you can't solve a problem if you think you're a victim. 
Mm-hmm. But this goes back to everyone's a narcissist. Everyone's a narcissist. Narcissist, narcissist. Yeah, narcissists are jerks, and you know, I don't like them. And I can go on and on. I I don't do videos like that, but I could because um, to me. That, <laughs> but um, the only way that I got better, better that sounds so trite, or healed, was I realized it was because of me, and the yeah. only and. And that's how we can change. We can't change if we blame our parents. So you'll find it, depending on what we talk about, I kind of vacillate on, on this, that. I just, you know, it's that's just how I am. Yeah, no, I think that that, I guess when I think about like um, being angry towards our parents, you have to express the feelings, but then it's like you can't allow the anger to get into the way of you taking responsibility for your own healing and recovery. And that's where the the issue lies. And I guess it's more so not staying in the anger, but more so staying in the victim role. Can you explain that? I'm sorry. Um, I didn't get that. And so you can't let your anger just say it over again, because you can't. I let think your- that sometimes people can stay so stuck in, yeah. in the anger and I guess it's more so staying stuck in the victim role to where they'll use that as an excuse as to like, um, it's not my oh, yeah. fault that I'm fucked up. Well, yeah, right. it's not your fault that you're fucked up, but you're the only one that can do anything about exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. Your parents can't exactly. go to therapy for you. It's okay to have anger, but as long as it's not keeping someone stuck in the victim mentality. Right. You know, I actually... There's um, I, there's so much that um, I teach my clients to go beyond this conversation. But one of the concepts that I teach my clients about anger is what I call false power syndrome. Mm. And that is when you get angry. And I think it's just kind of, I think it's kind of evolutionary. I think, you know, but when you get angry, you feel powerful and strong. Um, and and I know for me, but other people, you say things that you you don't even think that you'll regret because in that moment, you feel justified that you're going to stand up and you're going to protect yourself. Well, that false power, that anger, if it comes from an unhealthy place, you're going to later realize that you did something wrong or you embarrass yourself. And so I bring that up now is that anger, if it comes from, and I'm going to just be cliche, a dysfunctional source or pathological source, not from, you know, if, if someone steals your wallet, be pissed off. That's good. That would be healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, don't go and like beat up your dog. That's not, but, but if you don't experience that anger because of, you know, um, whatever reason that's pathological, you're robbed of the human experience that is going to help you heal mm-hmm. you identify with that anger. But a lot of people, ACOAs or ACA, what is the term? Is it, I, I'm both ACA, okay, ACOA. I get stuck in the eighties and nineties. What, what was that? What was the shit other one? Shows. That's what I call yeah, it. No, I don't We're like just, that. That's what but that's AC- my whole brand is. We're recovering shit shows. So I sell okay. like merchandise with shit show on it. So yeah. it's yeah. a term of men around here. Yeah. You know what? Uh, if you ever watch my YouTube videos, you'll see I'm really politically correct. Um, <laughs> okay. So shit shows, ACAs. So, you know, one of one of um, the most, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, a common trait for ACAs is they're angry. Um, and um, And if you take that away, you keep them from healing. But if you don't help them understand by staying angry, you are keeping in a, in a, um, in a self-fulfilling prophecy type of life where 
people are going, you're going to be expressing your anger, people, you're going to be pushing people away. So that's, it's funny, because we're going back to where we began about the anger, uh, the my anger continuum is anger is, is for so many people, a confusing topic. Mm-hmm. It's healthy, it's healing, and it can be really dysfunctional. And I forgot kind of where we went with this. So did, if I took us off track, do you have any, what are your thoughts on, um, on healthy ways of releasing anger that we may be harboring towards ourselves? So, um, it's to understand, um, if that anger you're holding is fair. Now I, and I can speak on my behalf or my clients and people I know, there are so many people that are so fucking angry at themselves and they don't even know it. It'll just happen. They'll make a mistake. And next thing you know, they're in that stinking thinking, you know, I'm such an idiot thoughts. And, um, and yet you have to not, if you just let it go, it's like, it's, it's superficial. You have to understand why do I, as a person get so angry so quickly and you can blame yourself and go to a cognitive behavioral therapist and they can help you try to get rid of it but it won't stick if it comes from this fundamental belief that people didn't love you when you needed that love people abandoned you when you needed that love and and your whole life you have just wanting people to just to be around and love you and the worst part of that harm you can't even remember because it's attachment trauma mm-hmm. so the way to let that anger go is to first understand its origins it's like it's like the anger is is i'm going to get kind of gross and i hate fluids and uh, but i'm going to go against my own common sense but if an infection there's that liquid stuff pus <laughs> pus <laughs> um and so you clean it out and and you scrub it and you do everything but what happens really deep down there there's there's this this piece of dirt it stays there well it keeps creating the infection so you can keep cleaning it but if you don't go deep enough to remove that piece that infection will never go away well it's the same thing with anger you can keep resolving it you can go to anger control classes you can like hug your mom and dad and do all these forced forgiveness exercises or maybe not forced but but if you don't get to the reason and the reason often is that you spent a, the earliest part of your life in a world that wasn't very nice to you mm. and that creates this unconscious or disassociated kind of cesspool of anger and rage so to your question now i can answer it is to, of course, do what every other good therapist coach does is, is let them talk about it and let them feel. Cause if I just went right to the source, people would say, if they didn't know me, they would say, this is not counseling, mm-hmm. but most people know me before they see me. So, you know, and you, you validate them and you help them come up with just like a cognitive behavioral therapist, better ways of thinking through things and not reacting, but it won't stick. And then eventually get to help go backwards in time and try to get them to identify what happened to you that has, that makes you so naturally angry easily. I feel like I'm talking to to my own therapist right now, because that was my discussion. I was a really angry person and I never was good at like, okay, count to 10. I had to realize how angry I was because of what happened to me as a child. And once I figured that out, 
it was easier and um, to modify, control my anger because I didn't have a short fuse anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's the short version of it. What was the relationship that you had that was like, wow, I really need to get some help? Oh my gosh. Uh, which one? Okay. Um, I, I'll, I'll pick the worst one. Please. Um, Give me um, the juice. Yeah. Cause she's least likely to listen to this and sue me. Um, <laughs> so this person, as my attorney said, when I wrote my first book, he says this, you cannot say it this way, or if she reads it, you'll get sued. So this person who I believe had borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, if you're familiar with borderline personality disorder, see, I actually have memories of it. I can feel some of that bubble up. Um, they can be pretty nasty. And this person was no exception. And it's love, hate, I love you. And then I do, and if you get me mad, I'll destroy you. And then I love you. It's a big circle and it's very devastating and probably the hardest type of relationship to be in. I was with, I had a boss who was an alcoholic. I can diagnose people from a mile away. I just don't share it because that would make me like socially um, outcast. I just share it. And I, and I, and I, I don't, sometimes I don't even think about it, but she was an alcoholic and she had a narcissistic personality disorder and she hired me because she didn't know what she was doing. And she got a job because of her friend. She found someone that had a lot of experience so she wouldn't have to teach them. And it worked out. I got more money. She hired me because I knew what I was doing. Was it a therapy role? Yeah, psychotherapy role. And then she got increasingly like a lot of narcissists, um, got insecure. And the more insecure she got, the more she had to like pick on me. And so this boss was trying to fire me because I'm not a passive. I wasn't a passive codependent. Mm -hmm. If you made fun of me, I would stand up and say, fuck you. Mm-hmm. But I still would stay in a relationship if you're a narcissist and take care of me. Remember my definition of codependency? Um, so I was like, and her best friend was her boss. So I was walking on eggshells at work. In that environment, my border, my the wife who I thought was border had borderline personality disorder, um, kept calling me a pussy. You got to stand up to her. You and mm-hmm. and I said, I said, you don't understand. You got I have to be smart. I have to find a job. I have to then, then I can't burn to burn, like, like a normal person. You, you just can't quit and say, screw you. You have, cause you want a reference. You want this. And I was working on that. And then one day she did something really nasty and she said, you know what? You're a pussy. And which is weird because I am like one of these guys that naturally don't, doesn't just, and I think it now in a healthy way, I just don't take shit, but she had BPD and she was projecting. I'm going to call the CEO of this company, this very large company, and basically say what's going on. And I said to her, if you do that, I will be fired. Mm. And she, because she had BPD, that made her go off. And I went to work and, and my boss was with her friend, her boss, and asked me to go into the room. And I knew I was fired. Mm. I just, you know, I've only been fired once. And you don't have to have experience of knowing to know what's what happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's a, there's a feeling you get when yes. someone says, well, and, um, and apparently she called the CEO, blah, blah, blah. And I, it was normally because I was what I call active codependent. I fought and argued, tried to control her. Mm. Of course, never worked. This was when I said, it's done. Mm-hmm. This could, there could not be anything more egregious than that. I mean, it's bad enough destroying my property and this and that, and you know, and other stuff I don't want to share. But that was an injury that I, um, it was my, it was my bottom. 
-hmm. And I kind of got quiet. I kind of knew that it's done. Um, because first of all, I didn't know how I was going to get a job. And, and what, what I didn't know, I was really depressed for the next six months because I couldn't find a job, but I, I had this intuitive sense that this was going to be horrible. So mm -hmm. since you wanted to know, no one's ever asked me for that juice. It was so traumatic. It calmed me. Mm. It brought me, it brought it into focus. Mm -hmm. And every one of my relationships that ended with a pathological narcissist, it was either I woke up and realized what was going on that I was in denial about. Denial, I love this as an acronym, don't even know I am lying. Mm -hmm. and I love that because denial, you're not doing it, it's happening. Mm -hmm. So the, I think an SLD, their bottom that brings them to me for psychotherapy or treatment is the understanding that it can't get worse and it can only get better. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, you're at that point where you just, you just, it just, it's too much. Everyone has a breaking point, even codependents, even people that have, even people that are in war where they witnessed everyone's breaking point and the breaking point for SLDs who finally leave, it is not natural. It is SLDs will not leave a narcissist because of it's an addiction. Mm -hmm. And this, the primary withdrawal symptom of this addiction is pathological loneliness. And I promise you, if you bring 10 people around that fit my diagnosis of, of codependency, and if you ask them about pathological loneliness before, or after relationships, and they will tell you about how dark mm -hmm. it is a bone aching feeling that is reminiscent of unconscious memories of their childhood. And you meet someone who's sexy, interesting. Um, Cause you, again, SLDs don't fall in love with assholes. Um, that's a different type of problem. Um, and you're so fucking lonely and you want the pain to go away. Mm -hmm. And that person makes you walk on, on a cloud. That is why, I created the concept of SLDD addiction, although because the addiction is to a relationship because you can't be alone because being alone puts you in a place to consider the feelings of your childhood, which you don't remember. So you need something to medicate and the relationship medicates the loneliness. And if you get, so if, if I know, you know, a lot of codependents uh, because of your job and maybe your life, um, if you talk to anyone that says, I'm going to leave, it's no different than saying, I'm going to quit smoking. I'm mm -hmm. going to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. They really mean it. And they are, and they leave and right before mm -hmm. they don't, or they come back mm -hmm. and all the shit that happens in their brain, which is actually has biological explanations that talks them into going back, you know, mm -hmm. the, the addict, um, they come up with the most inane, sometimes unbelievable. If, if you're like a healthy bystander and you're listening to them, you're going, what? It's no different than the drug. That's, you know, you know, how do you justify starting to drink again? You got to come up with an explanation that you believe. And if you're really smart, someone else might believe it for a little while. So, yeah. So I not, um, what I do is I create concepts, not because I want to expand it and make it this big monster of an idea, but if I'm going to help people solve it, and I warn them, I, I give them what I call my surgeon general warning. I say, this is going to be the hardest thing that you 
ever try to overcome because everything inside of you is going to tell you not to. And I warn them that once this happens, you're going to feel pain that you probably don't even know about mm -hmm. that uh, unless they've been in relationships. And so, yeah, that pain is, is like excruciating. Are you familiar? You just said you're familiar with that. Have some <laughs> of the people you've talked to explained it to you? Yeah. And I've been there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I have too. Um, so I'm somebody that thinks that once we dive into this work, I do think that it's important to stay single for a while and kind of do some inner work, but let's That's say funny. we've yeah. done that. And now we're dipping our toe back into the pool. It's not going to be easy breezy. <laughs> There's still more work that's going to have to be done. But can you talk about that? I'm so glad you asked that question because I have rules. Now, as a psychotherapist, you don't have rules. Otherwise, you suck. You listen. You're compassionate. But my self-love recovery program, I, I think of it as a treatment program. So if it's for alcohol, you can't drink. And if you drink, you're out. You can come back, blah, blah, blah. Well, my rule is, and it's a tough sell, is no romance. I usually kind of fib and say between for up to three to six months because um, I can sell that. Because how can you overcome this addiction and this, this compulsion, this desire to be with a narcissist if you're going to break up with him or divorce him and then you're going to find yourself in another relationship? So it's like, how do you stop? Um, um, how do you stop alcoholism if if you if, keep if, drinking, hanging out at the bar? <laughs> if Jack Daniels is your drug of choice, yeah. how do you stop your alcoholism if you just drink a little bit of wine? Which is an alcoholic, a little bit is like two bottles. Now let's let, let let's 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 come up with someone who's in real denial. They're drinking. Okay, one bottle. Uh, but the point is, you can't have intimacy because that you're not strong enough. Mm to work on yourself if you're involved in something that's taking your pain away. By the third month of my program, usually everyone gets it. And then they go, I'm not going to date because they start to realize how they get over the loneliness. They're starting to feel, you know, strength and self-esteem. And, and they start to, um, they start to realize they don't want to give this up. It's like the, even though they're not, at the conclusion of the treatment, they realize that they feel a way that they never have. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and I can do that in my treatment rather quickly. For me, three months is rather quickly um, mm -hmm. compared considering what I'm dealing with. Now, that sounds so harsh, what I'm dealing with. Uh, um, we, know, we, we all get it. Yeah. We know what we're dealing with. Everyone yeah. listening knows what the hell we're dealing with here. <laughs> so, so, And so the people would argue, just like a drug addict, well, how about just like, you know, just how about like one night stands? How about, you know, friends with benefits? You know, how about, and but sometimes in that discussion, I find out that they also are a sex addict. And then I go, mm -hmm. oh, oh gosh, this is more complicated. So yeah, so um, you, you can't, you can't heal from self-love deficit disorder if you're, you um, until you take away the conditions and the environment that sustains it. Mm-hmm. But we're we're dipping our toe back in the pond. What are some suggestions? So, oh yeah, this is a tough one. So my my program, everything is very logical. So I have eleven stage treatment program, and I'm not going to go over it because it's we don't have enough time. But stage nine is when you become 
self-love abundant, which is the cure. Um, self, um, the, the, to solve self-love deficit disorder or codependency, you have to solve all the reasons you're there. So that stage actually takes a while. You have to now perfect it. Mm-hmm. Then after that stage is bringing self-love abundance into a relationship with another self-love abundance. In other words, it's time. And actually, it's interesting. It's sometimes just a hard sell to my clients because they're afraid that someone's going to take it away from them. It's actually mm-hmm. really sweet. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it brings a lot of joy to me to see that. And they're nervous because it. I am dealing with a person developmentally who's like 18 or 19. They never dated and had the experiences of doing it the right way. So basically, it is to just date people and go through the ups and downs as someone who loves themselves. If you know, you still can be sad, you can be upset, but is to like practice everything that you've learned. And just like anyone else, you know, what do they say? You got to kiss a few frogs, something about frogs and princess princesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like, get out there. And if they're afraid, you work on that because that, that is a sign of something that is a roadblock that has to be talked about. And it's usually about vulnerability. And and that, remember, I'm a therapist. That gives me an opportunity to encourage someone that the world is safe. Mm-hmm. And in and, and some ways, a psychotherapist, at least a good one, um, is takes on almost like a parent role because you're like the only person that ever cared or they trust. And so in that role without uh, being healthy in it is you have to say, you know, trust me. You know, I would never say you should start something if I didn't think you were ready and you're mm-hmm. ready. And if you make a mistake, that's normal and you'll be okay. So the point of saying that is once you take away the addiction and someone actually experiences self-love, they're afraid that someone will take it away. But the other side of that coin is the opposite experience is they are excited. And I tell them, you don't have to look so hard because a human magnet syndrome, people don't hear this, but I say it in my book, it's not a theory of narcissists and codependence, Mm -hmm. opposites, attract. It's a theory of relationships. Healthy people are attracted to healthy people and they're still opposite. That someone who's a little bit on the caretaking side is still going to be attracted to someone who's a little bit on the self side, healthy stuff, normal stuff. And I say, and, and all my clients tell me the story so they confirm it is that people will find them. You know, all the stories about codependents saying, well, you know, they're, they're like, what, what do people say? I am a, um, the narcissist always find me. I, I forgot. There's some, some cliche things. Mm-hmm. Well, healthy people can recognize that energy. Mm-hmm. It's like if you ever met someone and they just have this really healthy energy and they didn't say anything yet. Well, that's kind of unconscious. You're, you just get this feeling. Well, that's a human magnet syndrome for self-love abundant people. And I say, live your life and be happy and be open to meeting someone. And if you need to pick up Tinder or whatever, but you know, I think Nathaniel Hawthorne said in one of his poems, you know, if you sit down quietly, a butterfly will alight upon your shoulder. And I say, mm-hmm. if you live your life with self-abundant love abundance, someone is going to recognize it and want it. I love that. What a beautiful note to end on. Okay. Yeah. We have tons of other shit I want to talk with you about. I want to talk about <laughs> next time. I want to talk about that's, what did I write funny. down? 
I like your um, personality. Unearthing yeah, trauma fossils. Well, I'm going to talk. Well, next time, can we have like an archaeological dig discussion? That's funny. Yeah, I, I, you missed my compliment. I said I, I, I like you talking know. to you. you. You're fun because you're authentic. You, you bring a lot of um, like real emotions and intellect and experience mm. to the table. I'm the real deal, baby. You're the real deal. <laughs> bring it on the shit show. Did I just did I speak did I speak your language? Yes, you did. Am I okay? I'm faking it, but I'm trying to okay. So yeah, I I would love it. And and maybe we can do it on my podcast, which basically you know, you you know, it's the same thing. Um same as far as I'm concerned. If you're in, if anyone is interested in any aspect of what I do or who I am or what I help with, just go to a website, selfloverecovery.com. That's the home of my company, Self Love Recovery Institute selfloverecovery.com. And if you want to have a question for me or uh, someone about what I do, help. The email address is help at selfloverecovery.com. But thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. it. I really appreciate your time. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that could help you on your own journey. As always, I know that you did. As always, if you didn't, seek help. Damn the join Patreon. Thanks again to Ross. You can uh, check out uh, the show notes for links to all all of his shit. Um, I wish you guys could see the setup that I have going on right now. So I haven't really figured out where I want to have my podcast studio be. Uh, in my new apartment. But so now I'm in a closet. I I haven't recorded in this closet yet, but it's like a little bit smaller. And I have this uh, like mattress topper for the the futon that I was um, sleeping on before my shit got here. And so I have this like foam mattress topper uh, in the closet with me, kind of like creating a... um, creating a, you know, like a a good quality conducive sound studio, (laughs) but it looks so like janky and it would, it took me forever to kind of like get it set up. And it was just such a waste of my time. And I don't even think it, you know, I don't even really know if it's going to improve the quality or not, but, oh yeah. So that's that. Um, I don't, I don't got anything else for y'all. Damn the join Patreon, give me a review. Again, if you had any aha moments from this episode, I would love to hear them. You can email me, Andrea at adultchildpodcast.com, or you can DM me. Uh, and I will see you shit shows, you shitty shit shows next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's gonna be super awesome. Super excited. If you out of here, it's gonna be a good I promise. <laughs>